Fair warning, uh, I, I do like to use a whiteboard, um, and also I have the supernatural gift of writing in tongues. Um, so hopefully you're sitting next to someone with the gift of interpretation, so you can understand what I'm writing. But, uh, and this whiteboard does not have spell check, so just give me grace this morning if anything is spelled incorrectly. This, the, the guiding question for this session has been asked by many throughout history, including the patriarch Job. What is remarkable about Job asking this question is the way that God described Job to Satan. Recall back to that book where God says that there was no one on earth like Job. Job was blameless. Job was upright. Job feared God. And God said that Job turned from evil. But yet in the ninth chapter of Job, he asked this question of his friend Bildad. How can a man be in the right before God? For those still holding to the inspired translation from 1611, King Jimmy says it best. How should man be just before God. Now on the board, we, we are outlining the process of salvation. God has called us to salvation and called us to trust in Christ. Then the Spirit of God regenerates us. He imparts spiritual life so that it can be possible for us to respond. Then we are converted when we are responding in faith to this call. And then we land with our topic of focus this morning on justification. This is God's response to our faith in Christ Jesus. So this morning, we're going to first start with a broad brush on this doctrine as we look at the clarity of the doctrine. When thinking of this concept, we must have in mind a legal setting, a, a courtroom with a defendant and a judge. Throughout the Bible, justification is presented as a forensic term. It, it addresses how a person stands before God. But let's quickly trace this thread in Scripture so we can form a foundation to best understand this stunning truth. According to Genesis 18, God is the judge of the earth. In the chronological path in the Bible, it's taking us to a final judgment where all of humanity will stand before God is judge. Paul makes this clear in Romans 14 where he says, For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We will have to present evidence before a holy and righteous God. We also learn that God is just. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 reads, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and Without iniquity, just and upright is he. God has structured his creation with just laws to, to govern how we live, so we reflect the glory of our creator. Being just and righteous, he is bound to uphold these just laws. But you all know we were incapable of lasting longer than one generation in the garden. And as a result, rebellion has ruled the hearts of every person. 
We are helpless in keeping the statutes of God, but even worse, we do not desire to keep them, nor do we desire to know him. But God also opposes sin and rebellion. We read in Psalm 7, 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Folks, this places us in a helpless position before a holy God who is our judge. The psalmist was aware of this frightening truth when writing Psalm 143, where he said, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one is living righteous before you. The dreadful reality is a righteous judge is bound to a lot to each according to what is due, and our payment, according to Paul, is death. Oh, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is the glorious truth of justification. God, a righteous judge, makes a legal declaration that a person is pardoned, accepted, and now is righteous in his sights. See, our assurance is based on this astonishing truth. The God that we will stand before at the end of the age, don't miss this, has already decided and declared his verdict in our case. Because he has ruled on the matter, then it is settled. There isn't an appellate level for our case to go higher than God. It is with this understanding that Paul asked in Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. If we were in a non-Southern Baptist church, that might be a good spot for an amen. Now, I'm not going to test your sanctification yet, but I'm sure there's more than one of us who's watched an episode of Judge Judy. And in Judge Judy's courtroom, once she's made a verdict, once she's made a declaration, once that gavel has been hammered, there is no opportunity to present additional evidence. So when Paul asked in Romans 8, Who can bring a charge? That is, the adversary cannot bring a charge. The world cannot bring a charge. And help me, somebody, I cannot bring a charge against myself. God has ruled that through Jesus Christ and his righteousness, I am declared just and righteous. But how can we be like Paul and have this great confidence in knowing that we are justified and that we are standing right before God. In Genesis, God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham. In Romans 4, Paul teaches that Abraham believed God in regards to this promise, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Paul offers further insight starting in verse 20 of that fourth chapter. Now, get this. Paul says, no unbelief made him, Abraham, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, watch this, fully convinced 
that God was able to do what he promised. Oh, that's good news. That Abraham didn't, didn't find any other equation to trust in God outside of the reality that God is able to keep his promise to him. And Paul said because of that trust in God, it was credited to him as righteousness. But the writer of Hebrews picks up this thread and grants us another angle to look at this. Beginning in Hebrews 6, 13, the writer says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had, watch this, no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. That gives me hope this morning that this promise that God has given me because of my trust in his son and my faith in his son, he swears by himself that he will keep that promise to you. I like how one author put it. Justification is the judgment of the last day brought into the present. We receive the verdict in advance of the final judgment. Like Abraham, we can rest in knowing that he is able to do what he promised. Our faith in him grows as we glorify God and we wait patiently for that final day. Until then, may our cry be like David's in Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Get this, on God rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. So that is the clarity of the doctrine. God declares sinners right and just. But now let's dig in deeper and look at the components of the declaration. So how does all this come to be? According to God's own standard, recorded in Proverbs 17, verse 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both like an abomination to the Lord. There are three critical components that allows God to declare a person as justified. The first is grace. Let's look what the Bible says about this. Paul makes this first component crystal clear in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Folks, our sin eliminated us from offering anything righteous before God. Justification is because of God's grace, showing kindness to people who are undeserving. Don't miss the connection here. The God whom is daily offended by our sins, the one that we have positioned and postured ourselves as enemies, he is the one who not only serves as our judge, but is the source of this gift of unmerited kindness. But just in case you hold to a view that your sin is so great 
It is so unpardonable. Paul dismantles that thought in Romans 5. Looking to Christ who offers to those who believe, Paul says, much more will those who receive, get this, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That word abundance is a beautiful word which tells me that God's righteousness, his, his grace is greater than all of my sins. Finally, in Ephesians 1, Paul emphasizes this truth by saying that we have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This is a simple statement, but with profound truth. God's grace is greater than your sin. And he gives it generously so that we can be declared and justified. So grace is the first component. Second is faith. We're doing okay as far as interpreting the the language? We're good up here so far? All right. So faith. So let's see what, what, what the Lord Jesus says about faith. In John 6, when the crowd asked Jesus, what works of God must they do? The Lord replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. According to Paul in Galatians 2.16, we read, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the Lord Jesus and Paul both speak of faith. They both speak of believing. They both denounce any reliance on works. So the next logical question is, well, what am I to believe? 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And Paul makes this clear, what we are to believe, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of the earliest parts of an epistle in the, in the manuscript evidence. Paul says that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, was raised from the dead, made appearances to over 500 people. And Paul goes on to say in that chapter, so we preach and so you believed. But it's important to make a clarification here on faith. Because in our culture at large, and even in the profession of believers, we now place emphasis on faith itself. You hear people say, well, I'm a person of faith. Well, my faith got me through. See, it's important to understand this clarity because faith is simply an instrument that God channels his grace to us as we trust in Jesus Christ. Faith is not the object in and of itself. Faith is the instrument where Jesus Christ is the object. See, it isn't the quality of our faith. It isn't the amount of our faith. It isn't the degree of our faith that saves or keeps us saved. It is the object of our faith. We do not look inward, but faith is looking to another, the person of Jesus Christ. 
And this is, in fact, Paul's testimony recorded in Philippians chapter 3, where we read, he wanted to be found in Christ. Watch this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God depends on faith. Again, it's an instrument. And having a right understanding of our sin, knowing that we have nothing else to trust in but the promise of God and the truth that Christ is our substitute, folks, that is why faith is the instrument and Christ is the object. But then the third component of justification And Pastor John, at this point, started taking all my notes away. So if this sounds repetitive, it's a good teaching tool to hear things over and over. This this, this third point is imputation. So how do I move? How do I move from guilty to not guilty to justified? How do I do that, right? This is the doctrine of the teaching of imputation. This word is used both in the Old and New Testaments with a legal reference to sin and salvation recorded by God. This, this verb, impute, it, it, I love this, it literally means to set down in a record or a ledger. Think of like an accounting uh, terminology here. Impute is to sit down in a record or a ledger. This is the word that Paul used when he wrote to Philemon, regarding the runaway slave Onesimus. Paul told Philemon this. He said, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, when I receive God's grace or if owes you anything, charge, that to, charge it to my account and I will repay it. Paul said, what Onesimus owes you, transfer that to my account, put that on my ledger and I will repay it. But, but wait, Our ledger is complete with sin. So what has changed when I receive God's faith through the uh, God's grace through the instrument of faith? First is our sin. This is this is a cross, okay? And this is stick figure time. So our sin. So let's just say sin. Our sin has to be imputed. It has to be transferred to Christ, right? That takes us from guilty to not guilty. But that still doesn't leave us in a position to where we can be declared justified or righteous. So there's a second part of imputation. And I dare not to dishonor the Lord Jesus, so let's just, he's here. I'm not going to reduce him to a stick figure. But Jesus is here. His righteousness of storing up 33 years of obedience and keeping the moral, keeping the ceremonial law, Jesus' righteousness is now transferred to our account. Our sin is transferred to his account, so that's how I move from guilty to not guilty. But his righteousness is transferred to my account, that's how I move from not guilty to justified. One of the clearest verses showing this central truth is found in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him, talking about Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Paul develops this truth in Romans 5 when he contrasts Adam with Christ. And in the culminating verse, in verse 19, he says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. And again, speaking of Abraham's experience in Romans 4, Paul teaches us that his faith was counted as righteousness. Abraham trusting in the promise of God, Paul said, was counted as righteousness. This is the beauty of imputation. My sin is transferred to Christ, and he absorbed the full wrath that I had stored up in my rebellion against a holy God. His life of perfect obedience and submission is now transferred to my account. And when I, through faith in him, receive the grace of God, I am now declared justified and righteous. But, but this word that Paul uses back in Romans 4 is, is an interesting word. It's, it's the word count or or credit. It has two meanings. The first meaning is, is, is it's counted because it truly belongs to the person. Pretty easy to understand that, right? Makes sense. But the second way this term is used is where it's relevant to our context. This word count or credit is counted as true that isn't actually the case. And a good way to think about this is in Genesis 31, when Jacob is, is fleeing Laban, and he has his wives and his kids and the whole crew with him, and Laban catches up, and Laban is furious, and Laban looks at his daughters, the daughters that he knows, and he counts his daughters as foreign women. Now, were his daughters foreign women? No. But, uh, but Laban counted them. He, he transferred something to them that wasn't, in fact, true of them. And that's what Paul is saying, is that God transfers Christ's righteousness to us. But see, Christ's death was sufficient to secure our forgiveness of sins, but his righteousness is needed for justification. Now, an important note we, we have to get right here. The manner in which the word imputed is used in the Bible does not suggest that any change of moral character is involved in justification. Let's go back to Judge Judy. Once Judge Judy pronounced guilt or innocence, did that declaration change the nature of the person? No, they were either guilty or innocent. When God declares you righteous, declares me righteous, it is not what Pastor John was saying in the Roman Catholic Church that this infusion of grace comes upon me and now morally my, my, my DNA is righteous like Christ. That's not what the declaration does. The declaration views me in light of Christ's righteousness. Here's why this is critical in the scope of assurance. The declaration is conditioned upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Meaning, just as there was nothing I could do to earn it, there is nothing I can do to alter, adjust, or abandon it. It's all conditioned and dependent upon Jesus Christ. But if we hold the incorrect understanding, this transformative understanding that is not forensic, then I'm responsible for maintaining the righteousness that was infused to me. 
And folks, we know figuratively, we couldn't get the car off the lot before we sinned after we became a believer in Jesus Christ. So God, according to this incorrect view, changes my righteousness. Then I sin. What happens next? How do I then deal and stand rightly before a holy God? Y'all ever heard of purgatory? That's where that concept comes in. And so this is why this transformative view is inaccurate. It is a declarative view, a forensic view, that is solely based on Jesus Christ. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. So if the apostle Paul had not yet reached this perfect state of righteousness, how much more so should you and I? So it is a declarative state where I trust in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we've seen the clarity of the, of the doctrine. We've seen the components of the declaration. Let's quickly look at the confusion that is distressful. The first area where we get confused is there are examples in the New Testament of apostates, people who have walked away from God. Two quick examples is in Matthew chapter 7, famously where the Lord Jesus says, and some of you, you know, you're saying all these works that you've done, and <clears throat> Lord, did we not do this, and did we not do that? And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And, and, and a genuine concern of ours is that we don't want to be in Matthew 7. We don't want to be on that team. How do I know I'm not on that team? But you have to look at the characteristic of the group that Jesus is addressing. They were trusting in their works to please and to appease a righteous God. That's why the Lord responded, depart because I never knew you. If you are trying to approach God through what you can do for him, then yes, you are squarely in Romans 7, or uh, Matthew 7, and you want to get out real quick. But the other example of apostasy that I just want to bring to your attention is, is in John 6, when Jesus brings out this this great, incredible truth about who he is. I am the bread of life. At the end of chapter 6, some of his quote-unquote disciples walk away. The truth was too hard for them. And the Lord Jesus turned to those who were remaining, and he said, do, he said you do not want to go away also, do you? And he shows the difference between those who left and those who stayed. And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, people walked away. False converts walked away from Christ for one or two reasons. One, they approached it with a works-based salvation. Secondly, they wanted things out of Christ. They approached Christ for what they could get out of him. They did not want him. They wanted the blessings of being with him. And when they saw that the, the the, the, the road got too rough, they bailed. So that's the example. That, 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 but if you are with Peter and you're like, yes, the road is hard and life is a struggle and, and I'm struggling to, to walk and to obey the Lord, but, but I can't go anywhere else because he has the words of eternal life. That's a good sign that we're not in that Mark or Matthew 7 and John 6 category. The second confusion that is distressful 
is an overemphasis, we overemphasize justification. Man, I, I know the minute that I was saved, you know, I, I repeated this prayer, I walked the aisle, I turned in a card, and we, we over-exalt justification, and in over-exalting it, we diminish sanctification. And we kind of end up where, where James is writing in his epistle that you have people who are like, yeah, I, I believe, but I'm going to live how I want to live. I'm just going to hit cruise control until the Lord Jesus returns. That's not saving faith. And so what we, when we overemphasize this, we fall into this trap of easy believism, that you pray to prayer, now you're good. And then you hear accompanying that is a misuse of Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And well, oh, you know, he's just a prodigal. She prayed a prayer when she was like two and a half months old, but she, she saved. And, and that's easy believism. And, and when you over-exalt justification, then that's a very dangerous place to be. But then the third confusion that is distressful is just around end times. Because there are some verses that we look at them and we're like, okay, I'm a little confused. For example, in Romans 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, past tense, right? What Paul is saying is that when you responded to the call, you were regenerated, you you responded and, and you believed and trust and, and expressed your faith in Jesus Christ, he has declared you righteous. That was at that point of conversion. So it's a past tense use that Paul talks about. But then again, Paul then goes on in Romans 14, 12 and says, for we all stand before the judgment seat of God one day. You're like, wait, whoa, wait a minute. If I'm already justified, but then the day is going to come where I still have to stand before God and give an account for every word, thought, and deed, is that like a second round of justification, like part two? Well, then that kind of brings you, if you, if you are concerned about that, that brings you back into that transformative camp of, of thought, that, that in-between time from when I was converted and then when, this is my eternity symbol, um, so between that time and eternity, that now I'm responsible for all my actions and, and God may take away my justification, that's a very unhealthy, unbiblical view. What this is talking about is that justification is an already but not yet reality. On the day of judgment, we'll erase that, on the day of judgment, God will declare publicly, publicly what he has already decided on your case. When you express your trust in Jesus Christ and you're depending upon his works of righteousness for your forgiveness and for your justification, you are justified. And then when we stand before him and Paul says we have to present our evidence, we have one piece of evidence to present and that is the work and the power and the love of Jesus Christ. That's our evidence. So it isn't a double justification now, since the counseling ministry is hosting this conference, any good counseling session ends with homework. So let me just, over these next couple of minutes, give you some homework. And that is some comfort when you doubt. When you look at um, the Puritans, man, it was not uncommon to wrestle with assurance. And so if you do struggle with that, are struggling with that, Come across someone who is struggling with that. Oh, have 
a, a, a heart of understanding and empathy. Because you're not the only one to be in that boat and to row. But let me give you two pieces of homework. First, is something to look forward to. In those moments of doubt, something to look forward to. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, beautiful future forward-looking event, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 18 is a dark but yet glorious chapter where the Lord Jesus confronts the rebellion of humanity. And in chapter 19, we see this great event. And this is what is recorded in verse 7 of Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And here we go. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. That word granted is a beautiful word. Don't miss the importance of the word. This this, this verb is, is what is in the passive voice, which basically means the subject is receiving or is being acted upon. John records that the bride of Christ, it was granted to her. She is receiving, she is being acted upon to put on clothes of righteousness and purity. And what a contrast from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 64 when he says, our righteous deeds are likened to filthy rags. But because of God justifying us, we will be clothed with Christ and his righteousness for all of eternity. It was granted to us. It's by grace, through faith, that God declares us to be just. So when you have moments of doubt, you want to be like Abraham and cling to that promise. And you look forward. Abraham, according to Hebrews, said he patiently waited for the fulfillment of the promise. This day is going to come where you and I will be with our Savior forever in glory clothed in righteousness. So that's something to look forward to. But let me give you something to hold to as you go through these remaining years on this earth. Turn with me to Psalm 130. About three years ago, three summers ago, uh, for the first time in my life, I experienced depression. Never experienced it before. Didn't know what was coming upon me. But I quickly realized, for me, it was my my perspective had kind of got off center a little bit. And I went through the Psalms, and I just found Psalms that spoke to the the issues I was dealing with in my depression. And whenever those those feelings would would, would come over me, and I was like, oh, man, I would just pull up my phone and read that first aid kit, if you will, of all these Psalms. Look at Psalm 130, is that for you or for to give to someone else? Listen to this, and then we're going to close. Ironically enough, this is written as a song of ascent. So they are going up to the temple. I don't have time to, to make that connection for you here, but 
Maybe you buy me coffee and I'll tell it to you later. Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And don't miss that word, Lord. It's, it's, it's the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, the God who keeps his promises. He says, I cry out to the covenant-keeping promise. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Father, we stand in all of you. Lord, without Christ, we could not stand before you guilty and stained with sin. But because of your great love, your rich grace and mercy towards us, Lord, you provided your Son as a sacrifice for us. And Lord, may we, like Abraham, cling to the promise that you could only swear by yourself that through faith in you, we receive your grace. And by placing our complete reliance upon the works and the righteousness of Christ, you declare us just. And Lord, that this day forward, we can rest in knowing that our sins are forgiven. We can rest in knowing that we are right before you. And as Paul says that we can come, uh, as the writer of Hebrews says, we can come boldly before your throne. Oh, Father, may your words resonate in the hearts of your people so that we can grow in our confidence and our trust in you. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.